This is the MG Car Club podcast with Wayne Scott and Adam Sloman. On this week's episode, a fascinating story on the TV over Christmas that has unknown MGB links. Plus, we talk about K-Series MG Midgets. The MG Car Club podcast. Hello and welcome to the latest MG Car Club podcast. I'm Wayne Scott and this is our 40th episode. You're very welcome along. Now, no Adam this week while he's having some time off, but a great interview on the way for fans of the MG Midget and the K-Series engine. More on that very soon. But this being our 40th episode, I thought I'd share a story of something significant in MG's history. And it came to mind this because over Christmas I caught a fantastic documentary. Did you see it? It was called Steve McQueen, The Lost Movie. And it was all about the race between two directors to get a film about Formula One out into the box office in 1966. Ultimately, it was Steve McQueen's film that lost out. And it was this that spurred him on to make the 1970 film Le Mans. Anyway, uh, the film that made it out first was, as we know, Grand Prix, directed by John Frankenheimer and starring James Garner in the lead role. The film was photographed in Super Panavision 70, groundbreaking at the time, and its unique race in cinematography is one of the main reasons to watch it, really. It's full of stunning archive footage, of actual Formula One races from the mid-60s. It's just phenomenal. The sequences in there also are real-life drivers as well. It includes Phil Hill, Graham Hill, Juan Manuel Fangio, Jim Clark, Jochen Rint, Jack Brabham, loads of others as well. Dan Gurney's in there, Bruce McLaren, Joe Siffert, some huge names from that period in Formula One motorsport. It was so good, it won three Academy Awards for its technical achievements in 1966 and was one of the top ten grossing films of that year. But one of the reasons for its success was the huge budget spent on the army of stunt drivers and technical advisors. And this is where the MG link comes in. One of those stunt drivers in a Brabham was one Ken Costello and he was earning a lot of money driving a Brabham on this movie at that time. What the documentary over Christmas wouldn't have told you, though, was that it was while filming at Monza when Ken Costello visited the Motor Museum there. And it was within that Motor Museum that he came across a small-block Maserati V8 engine, and the seeds were sown in his mind for a really fast, small road car. Back in England, after filming was completed, he happened to spot a Rover V8 on the floor of the workshop at Piper's Garage in Hayes, Kent. He thought a bit about it and then borrowed a red MGB from a mate of his who worked in insurance. It was a roadster and he also went out and bought a used Oldsmobile 215 engine and set about it. By the end of November 1969 and after six months of trial and error, the car was running and the enormous potential for a V8-powered MGB started to become obvious. Thus, a new V8 conversion company was born and the idea was that customers would supply their MGB, which Ken and his mechanics would then take apart and convert using Rover P6 engines and the standard MGB gearbox. 
The cars, if you see them today, they're easily identified by that egg box radiator grill, Jensen alloy wheels, Costello V8 tail badge, and a big round bubble on the bonnet to accommodate the carburettors. After some development and experimental time, a few customers' cars went out the door and word spread, and finally it came to the attention of the motoring media. In the February-March 1971 issue of Motoring News, there featured a road test of Ken Costello's MGB V8. Hailing the car as a breakthrough in performance for sports cars in general, but in particular, the performance figures in the day for an MGB were mind-blowing. The story continues, though, because apparently, on the back of that magazine article appearing, a letter arrived with Ken Costello, and the letter was from Charles Griffin, who was, at that time, Director of Engineering at MG. The story goes that Ken Costello turned up unannounced and forced Griffin to break his very busy schedule at Longbridge and come down and see the car. Legends Harry Webster and George Turnbull, who you'll note were Triumph men as well, they were also on hand to look over the car and they took it round the test track, gave it a good thrashing while Griffin took Costello for lunch. And all appeared amicable. Griffin even helped to check stock levels of the MGC rear diffs that Ken Costello needed to complete his conversions to help him out. But it's at this point when things go a little bit sour. A week later, Ken Costello was told to take the car to British Leyland head office in London's Berkeley Square so the chairman himself, Lord Stokes, could take a look. And legend has it that on that test drive, Lord Stokes asked Ken Costello, what will you do if we start to produce this? Now, apparently, Ken replied that he would keep building them because it would take Lord Stokes's British Leyland at least two years to get into production. And I think probably Lord Stokes knew this to be true because the next step is truly amazing. In late 1971, a brand new left-hand drive Harvest Gold MGB GT and, on a crate a Rover V8 engine arrived from Abingdon to Ken Costello's place with an order to fit the engine into the MGB and treat them just like any other customer. And two weeks later, Julie Ken personally delivered the finished car to his clients at special tuning in Abingdon. Now, what we know about this now is that MG engineers actually then examined the car and, excited by the idea of building their own, forged ahead with their own prototype. This led, in August 1973, to MG launching the MGB GTV8. Worse still, just to add insult to injury, they allegedly never paid Kenny's invoice for the work either. Amazing. So that's why if you see any of the period adverts for the Costello conversions from around 1973, you'll see that they carry the strapline as a warning to customers to beware of imitations. And I can only assume that that meant Abingdon themselves. Ultimately, though, Lord Stokes would go one step further. He actually managed to kill off the business of Costello conversions because he ordered almost immediately that no dealers were to sell any new V8 engines without an old unit in exchange, and that just cut off Ken's supply. 
Ken Costello then tried to get engines sourced in Europe. He tried to import them in retaliation, but um, with the availability of factory cars now, they were managing to make them with mass production savings and the price tag was so much lower that Ken's customers all but evaporated at this point. Ken did though manage one last laugh because the MG launch of the MGB V8 came in 1973 just in time for a global oil crisis whereupon consumer demand for thirsty V8s was pretty thin on the ground by that point. The changes MG made on the production line to the MGB as a result of all that have made MGB V8 conversions today a much easier prospect than when Ken Costello started doing them in the late 60s. He had to grapple with all sorts of engineering changes back then. But we should never let history forget where that all started. Well, I thought that was a fascinating story, and I was really interested to see that documentary on Steve McQueen's lost movie over Christmas. It is available on all of the Watch It Again services. I think it went out on Sky. So, uh, yeah, well recommended. Check it out if you can. Neil Thomas is next with MG Midgets and another MG engine conversion, this time involving the K-Series. All will be revealed next here on the MG Car Club Podcast. The MG Car Club Podcast. The MG Car Club, the mark of friendship. To take advantage of our many membership benefits, access to our centers and registers, and to receive your copy of Safety Fast magazine, join us now at mgcc.go.uk. Sharing your passion for MG on the MG Car Club podcast. Well, on this week's MG Car Club podcast, we're talking about a car that's celebrating an anniversary this year, and we're very excited about that anniversary. It is, of course, 60 years of the MG Midget, and it was a car that revolutionised and made sports cars more accessible in the early 1960s. Well, one of the most passionate people that we could ever hope to meet about MG Midgets joins me now on the podcast. Welcome, Neil Thomas. Hello. Hi. Yeah, thanks for inviting me on to, uh, to speak. It's very good of you. Well, Neil, I know you've been dedicating your life, really, to midgets over the past few years, haven't you? Yes, certainly. Um, you know, my interest in midgets started um, as a, a 20-year-old when I was living in Bristol, um, and uh, I bought a Mark III midget, which was 1980, and um, I've still got it. You know, despite homes and children, I've kept the car. It's still on the road. It's still um, insured, and um, okay, I don't get to dri- drive that often nowadays, but it's still there, and I couldn't ever imagine selling it. Um, and of course, the my involvement then has just gone on from there with other midgets. You know, I was keen to to get a frog eye um, because I know that's where the midgets came from, basically. And I was lucky enough to purchase one um, back in two thousand and uh, one. Um, 2002, and uh, it was yeah, a 1958 Frog. It's, it's lovely, you know. Still got it. Fantastic. Well, when you look back to buying that car all those years ago, you know, we talk about the midget in terms of it democratizing the sports car, as it were, and making it accessible. Did it feel like that at the time? Did it feel like there was a sports car there that you could actually afford to go out and buy? It was accessible as an everyday car, and was that the attraction? It was. Um, you know, they they weren't expensive sports cars compared to many other uh, sports cars of their era. Um, they were accessible to people. 
1980, they were accessible to me. I couldn't afford to buy it. I think things have changed with the increase uh, in prices for midgets nowadays. It makes it much more difficult for young people to get onto the ladder. Um, but then, yeah, it was great. And I remember seeing my first midget. I was in a place called Tintin Abbey, and this blaze-coloured midget pulled up into a, um, a petrol station, and it must have been in the sort of late 60s, and I set my heart on them. One day, I'm going to have one of those. And I was only about nine or ten at the time. And so, yeah, it's it's strange how it affects you, you know. It is amazing when you look at them, especially when you see an early midget on the road today, just how small they are, you know. <laughs> I mean, they were small then, but even big cars of the 60s are small now, aren't they? But when you drive one, it, it doesn't feel like you're in something that you feel vulnerable in. That's what I've always thought. The only time I feel vulnerable is when um, I'm on a motorway and you get a 40-tonne um, Arctic lorry roll up alongside you overtaking you and you do feel a little vulnerable then because the height of its wheels are about the same height as your head <laughs> in the car um so i've got to confess when we go a distance in the in the midgets we tend to avoid motorways if we can although it's not always um that simple um but you know we prefer the, you know the a and b class roads because they come into their own then Ultimately, that was what the car was designed for in the day, wasn't it? It comes from a period where there was really only one motorway in the whole country here in the UK. Quite. You know, I live in Pembrokeshire, so if we want to go to the southern part of the country, we've always got to get over the Severn Bridge and um, cross the M4. So there's always a 20-mile length if we kind of choose our route carefully. We're on the M4, but then we get off it, and then we're heading down you know, on the A roads and B roads. And it's just fantastic. Driving my K-Series midget is a slightly different experience because with a modern um, running um, gear, it keeps up with everything. Um, And so you do feel less vulnerable because you can get out of the way quite quickly. Let's talk about that because, as you say, it's a brilliant way of upgrading the performance on a midget, getting a little bit more power and excitement from them. The engine was introduced way back in 1988 by Rover Group uh, in readiness for the arrival of the Rover 200. Um, It was an engine that was not without problems, of course, and actually I used to work on the old site of where GKN used to be on the Sheepbridge Industrial Estate in Chesterfield, where they used to make the liners that, of course, were part of the downfall of those early K-series engines. Um, Ultimately, though when honda started to pull back from supplying engines to mg rover they continued to develop it well into the 1990s and of course we ended up with the 1.6 and 1.8 liter versions as well why the k series neil for you it still has a connection with mg um it's a modern engine and it's part of the family uh, of mg cars um, i know some people go for ztex i'm prefer the K-Series. It's a fantastic engine. It's a brilliant design. It's lightweight. It's powerful. It's ahead of its time, really, and lots of other manufacturers followed that sandwich construction principle. And it was just unfortunate that certain elements of the construction of it led to the common head gasket issue. Those issues have been resolved now with um, developments in the type of gasket, with the dowels used, um, and other things to improve the cooling that 
now they are really reliable. Well, of course, one of the problems with the engine in the MGF was things like that little cheeky coolant leak underneath the inlet manifold that you just can't see. Um, but I guess with a midget, once you've converted it, you've obviously stripped and, as you say, rebuilt that engine with more modern components. And you do actually get a better view of the engine while it's running for maintenance, don't you? Oh, much better. Because obviously um, it's no longer transverse, it's longitudinal. Um, and so the manifolds are quite easy to, easy to see. The water outlets are easy to see. Um, the thermostat has in. You know, it's, it's, it's much easier to maintain. As soon as I lift the bonnet, the first thing I always look at is the header tank um, because I like to see what the water level is. Um, I can't get out of that habit. Um, it tells you a lot about you know, what might be happening with the, uh, with the engine. Um, so, yeah, the, when they're in the MGF or the um, ZRs, everything in there is so compact it's very difficult to to keep an eye on what's going on um but with the 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 midget um formula it's dead simple you know it's great well for anyone considering putting a k-series engine in a midget then talk us through what modifications you have to make so we've rolled it in the garage we've taken our original engine out what next so, um, as I said, the engine is in there longitudinally, so you have to um, be able to um, put a different bell housing on, which will then allow you to touch to the uh, prop shaft. So a lot of people um, used to go for the catering bell housings because catering had them um, specially cast. Of course, um, they, don't, they no longer use the K-series, so they don't produce those bell housings, so they're quite difficult to come by. But there are companies that produce alternative bell housings, which are still available. Um, so the bell housing is an issue uh, you need to get over. The position of the starter motor, of course, um, uh, has to be overcome, and there's plenty of guidance on how to do that. The, um, you can utilize the original MEMS engine management system, if you choose, or you can go for a standalone um, system. I chose Emerald because it's um, more adaptable and you can do things to it yourself to um, change um, the setup of the engine. Um, the radiator, you can, if we use, I, I still just use the standard 1275cc radiator, no problem with that. Um, the gearbox, well, um, most people have gone for a five-speed forward type nine gearbox because they fit rather nicely into the existing tunnel, albeit the gear lever is pushed back approximately four inches, but that can be overcome by having the remote shortened. It, it does require some modification of the bodywork um, in terms of the mounting to the gearbox, but that is a simple modification. And I'd always entreat people, if they do it, to retain their heater system um, because in the winter, issues will have a heater and to get the ice softly inside the windows and to be a bit more comfortable. Um, so a little bit of modification uh, to the battery tray is required, but the battery is often relocated anyway. Um, some put it into the boot. I chose not to do that because we use the car for touring, so my wife insisted on having all the luggage space available she could get. Yes, you need so, it all in a midget. <laughs> well, yeah, we've had some long trips you know, over the continent with it, and you wouldn't believe how much you can get in there. Um, but I, I've got a gel battery on mine, which sits on the inner wing in the engine bay, and it's you know it, it's you you don't notice it, and it's out of the way. Um, so it's you know it it 
it's a great conversion to do. It's really satisfying. People get worried about the wiring. There's so much help out there with the K-series. You know, my friend Anthony Cutler, who's a, who's a keen K-series man and has had one converted longer than I have, um, he maintains um, a, a register of K-series midgets, and he has well over 100 listed on there. Uh, which have been converted which is fantastic really a lot of people will be listening to this thinking oh you know i'm quite familiar with my twin su's i quite like them they're comforting because they're simple um and might find electronics and engine management systems a little bit scary how have you found implementing that sort of at home as a diyer in the garage it was absolutely fine yeah it's fear of the unknown i suppose but, you know, as I said, there's plenty of help out there. People who've done it before, who've produced their own wiring diagrams even. And the benefit, obviously, by going to fuel injection is economy and efficiency. You, if you drive that car, you should drive it steadily. You'll be looking at 45 miles per gallon. Now, you know, no ACOs will do that. Um, you know, midget, 30, 32, 33, 34, perhaps. But 45 is fantastic. And reliability is key. You don't have points or condensers breaking down. You know it's going to start every time you turn the key. Um, it's it's um, greener, it's cleaner. The emissions are much lower. So, you know, everything's positive about it. I can't think of a negative thing to say about it, to be honest. What power increases can you expect to see? Well, they range. It depends on the size of engine you use. Of course, you know, if you use 1.4, then... Um, you're probably looking at 125 brake horse, I would say, thereabouts, perhaps a bit less. But, you know, there are midgets out there now producing well over 200, 250, um, some even beyond that. Um, you have to do a lot of work to the engine to get those sort of figures, though. My standard 1.8 um, engine, which was new when I purchased it, old stock, uh, um, destined to be in a Rover 45 automatic, would push out 145 brake horse on a rolling road. Um, but, you know, with uh, all sorts of wizardry by converting um, the cams, by um, adding throttle bodies, uh, forged pistons, rods, um, you get up to 185, 190 brake horsepower which is a, a lot of power per tonne for a car weighing just 700 kilograms. Yeah, absolutely. That's That makes a very quick car. Um, <laughs> a very quick car very quickly, which then begs the question, brakes, you must have to do something in that department. Yeah, I think with every modification, whatever vehicle, you know, one thing begets another. So more power, you have to um, um, work on the handling, the suspension, the brakes, so most K-series midgets evolve because it's a lot of expense to do it all in one go. So they evolve. People will um, uprate the suspension. They'll put adjustable dampers on front and rear. They'll add things like pan hards and tramp bars. Um, they'll add um, four-pot um, alloy calipers on the front uh, with larger discs, and better pads. So, you know, you can get a package together which makes the car very um, easy to stop and to handle, to corner. You wouldn't believe what it's like being in a midget when you're going around somewhere like Castle Coombe and you're touching 100 miles an hour, going up over Avon Rise in the quarry and the brakes are coming on and it's just an amazing feeling going around <laughs> that bend then. 
Well, I've always thought about the midget. It's one of the best cars because you always feel like you're going fast. And, you know, quite often I've been driving a midget around the country lanes on road tests for articles that I've written. And, you know, you'll come across the speed camera and you'll think, oh, dear, I'm going a bit hot towards this. And you'll look down, you're doing about 45 and a 60, you know. <laughs> so when you've got some real go, it must feel like absolute lightning speed. It is electric, honest. You know, you, you think, wow. Every time I jump in my car, my friends are the same. You know, I've met so many people over the years who've become lifelong friends. And they all just love getting in their midgets. And the smiles on their faces are unbelievable. And, um, and you know, we're talking about K-series now, but not forgetting my friends who have Z-Techs as well, um, which are also very capable cars. Although we always jokingly speak about the weight of the engine because um, the K-series is a very light engine compared to a Z-Tech. Um, so that's always a, a point that we have, um, have interesting conversations on. Mm. Well, of course, it is a hell of a lot lighter than an A-series engine, and that's obviously going to change the handling dynamics. And midgets, even though they're very small, if you push one on the California Cup at MG Live around the auto solo, you'll realise that they do suffer a bit from understeer, and the front end tends to wash right the way out to the outside of a corner. Reducing that weight over those front wheels must bring the handling back into line pretty nicely, I would have thought. It makes a big difference. I have to say, though, the Type 9 gearbox is a heavier gearbox but the weight distribution is further back, so it's more centralized. So without that extra weight over the front wheels, yeah, it does make a, a, a lot of difference to the handling. It feels very planted. You know, when you're going through a corner on a track at speed, the car doesn't budge anywhere. You know, it just goes around the bend. If you've got, um, you know, I've got a, a limited slip diff in mine, and it just drives those corners like fantastic um, performance. There will be some purists listening to us talking about this with such enthusiasm neil that might be a little bit disturbed by this conversation i can imagine <laughs> there are people everywhere saying you can't change a midget it should be left exactly as it came out of abingdon what's your answer to that well i'm just following what cecil kimber did they've been developing mgs for years so nothing stays um, stationary um i think old number one you know wasn't exactly a standard MG, and so all we're doing is carrying on the tradition. If you don't, you know, move things forward and try different things, things never develop. And um, certainly with the with the, the K series midget, you know, I, I don't think people realise quite what they are like. And I'm sure if they did, they'd be queuing up to get one converted, even now. And even now, the K series engine is getting a bit long in the legs. There's still plenty around and still plenty of specialists around to, uh, to develop them, to rebuild them and uh, to get great performance out of them. The great thing is, as you said at the very start of our conversation there, it is with MG DNA that you're upgrading this car. And whilst I accept those Japanese engine conversions are probably quicker and uh, probably clever in the way they're engineered there is something about upgrading a car with the same dna of its manufacturer isn't there well there is you know and that's um that's recognized by the um the mg car club speed championship of course because you know we are allowed to enter the events um in the hill climbs and sprints with our k-series midgets um which we've got to be really thankful to the mg car club for um, allowing us to do that. Um, 
because when you start changing engines, it becomes an, a whole new board game under MSA rules. But you know, we are allowed to compete, and that's fantastic. Well, we spoke to Ian Benningfield last year on the MG Car Club podcast. Um, he has done wonders with his little midget competing it up and down the country. And they are the most amazing hill climb and sprint cars. And often I think within all of the sort of glamour of circuit racing, hill climbing and sprinting sometimes gets forgotten or perhaps doesn't enjoy the share of limelight that it should. It's a great sport, isn't it? And midgets are ideally suited to it. It's the entry level motorsport, isn't it? Hill climbs and sprints. You know, let's not get away from that. It's still quite expensive. But, you know, if you want to get into motorsport, that is the start. I know you can auto tests and auto solos. But actually competing, you know, on a circuit or on a hill climb is just a fantastic feeling. And I know Ian, I've been at events with Ian because we do the same um, uh, championship. And uh, midgets surprise so many people. You know, you'll see, um, especially if you enter, I remember the, the um, Welsh Sprint and Hill Climb Club as well. And of course, when you enter an event with them, they have all sorts of cars, Subarus, Escorts, and the midgets really do turn their heads because they're up there with them with great times. And people think, how can that car that age be performing so well? Well, they're particularly suited to our historic hill climb venues aren't they places like shelsley walsh i've seen midgets do amazing things up in scotland at the bonus revival and actually they can embarrass some pretty exotic machinery quite you know i'm a member of mac and driven shelsley walsh many times um in different cars but the midget is the most exciting um it's fantastic loads of torque going up that hill into the bottom s's and uh, just hold on and get through to the top and through the finishing line but they do surprise a lot of cars i i've I'm always keen when I um, go to a circuit to try and do um, hill, hill climb driving school. Um, I've done them at Chelsea, but I've also done at Prescott. And um, here's a good example. I went to Prescott and there were 35 um, people being trained that day. And there were all sorts of cars. There were Morgans, um, Lotuses, there were um, Jaguars, BMWs, there was a Lancia Integrale. And uh, as the day progressed, you have um, lots of trainers uh, watching your progress and giving you feedback and then the day the trainers get all their heads together and they decide um which car performed best on the day in terms of cornering speed handling and i couldn't believe it at the end of the day they were given presentations and they were coming down in reverse order i thought well my name's been, not been called yet and actually they um identified my car as the best drive of the day going up Prescott against all these other cars. Brilliant. And I was, I was gobsmacked. I thought, wow. But it was a great feeling. But the midget, as you said, the handling on them, especially on a hill, is just superb. The mighty midget. Definitely the mighty midget. <laughs> no better car. Honest, there isn't. You make me want to go out now, get it out, a nice sunny day, go for a drive. But I can't because it's locked down. I uh, know, it's rubbish this lockdown because it's just taken away all our track time and road time in our classics, um, especially as, as we as we head towards this momentous year for the midget. It is 60 years old, and that's kind of quite hard to imagine because they seem to be still a current-feeling sports car somehow. Oh, most definitely. And, you know, at this stage, as you've mentioned the, um, the anniversary, um, I know the MG Car Club are involved with the Midgen Spike Club and the Austin Healy Club and other clubs associated with the mark in an event um, on the 27th of June at um, Gorsworth Hall um, in Cheshire. Um, 
it's um, a celebration of the 60 years of the midget. And I know there will be a lot of people go into it. Um, and I know um, members of all the clubs are looking forward to a great day out. And we just hope that um, the current situation doesn't um, prevent it taking place. But it will be a fantastic day. Yeah, we'll look forward to that and look forward to seeing all of the many eras and generations of midgets gathering together at some point this year. And let's hope it is for that event, as you say. Um, Neil, when you look back on your years of midget ownership, what are some of your fondest memories of ownership of that car? Oh, I thought I was the boy driving my midget. Hood down and uh, the sound from the exhaust and uh, people looking at it as you drive by because even though... When I bought mine, it was still, you know, 10 years old or so, because um, it's a Mark III. Um, people still wanted to look at it and come and talk about it. And uh, they just sort of, and everyone would say to you, oh, I used to own one of those. I used to own a midget. The number of people that say that to me, and a lot of them, I can see the, the glint in their eye that they wish they still had it. But, you know, last pressures of life, they've, you know, sold them or whatever. Um, but yeah, and uh, great for the girls as well. <laughs> but plus, we shouldn't go there. <laughs> well, uh, here I am talking to you on this podcast as a result of um, a great lifelong passion of mine for convertible cars. And like you, it all started for me with an MG Midget, my mum's MG Midget. In fact, a 1963 model that she took me out in, in my very first ride in a car without a roof. And it's a ride I shall always remember. And it stuck with me uh, for the rest of my life. And uh, well, got me into all sorts of trouble as it turns out. But um, yeah, they are a car that inspires. And once they get under your skin, it just lasts a lifetime, doesn't it really? Yeah, I, I will never be without an MG Midget. Um, the problem I have is that, you know, over the years I've collected um, quite a few cars and restored them, and I don't have the heart to sell them. And so I just get more and more, and I've got two garages with six cars in, and I keep thinking I've got nowhere to work now because it's just full of MGs. <laughs> So it is a bit of an addiction, I think. <laughs> it's a nice problem to have, though, all the same, that's for sure. <laughs> well, yeah, I know. But I wish I could drive all of them more regularly, but it's just not possible, you know. Um, um, but there you are. That's how it is. I, I've got them, and um, long may that remain, you know. Absolutely. Well, if you want to find out more about hill climbing and sprinting your MG Midget, of course, you can find more details about the championship via mgcc.co.uk. Uh, click on the racing tab there and you'll find the hill climb and sprint guys offering all sorts of advice via the website on that route. And also, if you're looking to buy an MG Midget, of course, the best place to look is via the MG Car Club with the Midget Register. You can find all the details for that and more at mgcc.co.uk. .co.uk and in this 60th anniversary year why don't you share some of your stories and memories of the MG Midget with all of us you can do that really easily by going to the podcast landing page mgpodcast.uk filling out the contact form there getting in touch or indeed you can leave us a voice message there as well to share your midget stories with the rest of the MG community worldwide via this podcast the MG Midget then, a fantastic car that we all love and a car that brought sports cars to the masses and a car that gives other people that watch you driving by on the street as much pleasure as it gives people like Neil. 
Thanks for sharing your midget passion with us. It's been great to uh, enjoy that uh, journey with you. If people want to find out more about putting a K-Series engine in midgets, where's the best place to look for them? Well, yes, there's um, a Facebook group called K-Series KZ Midgets. Um, so if they go to that, um, they can um, ask to join and then um, they can come on board and we can share our passion with them and help them in their uh, modification. Brilliant. It's been a real pleasure talking to you, Neil. Neil Thomas, thanks for joining us. Thank you. Subscribe to receive new episodes of the MG Car Club podcast at mgpodcast.uk.